Good morning to you once again, everyone. We're glad you're here with us. Welcome. Uh, if you are with us by live stream as well, we welcome you. If you have your Bible with you or handy, or um, you can open it up or turn it on uh, to Romans chapter 16. That's where we're going, at least to start this morning. You know, um, uh, as someone said, you know, God didn't retire on Easter. Uh, you know, in many ways, the Easter story feels like a happy ending, right? Feels like a, you know, a, a, a story that, you know, turned into a tragedy throughout, you know, as Holy Week built up, built up, and then eventually Good Friday, and then, and then Easter Sunday morning with the resurrection of Christ. It feels like a happy ending where there ought to be a big old giant, you know, and they lived happily ever after kind of thing, and it feels like an ending. Uh, and yet, in a very real, not a very, in a real sense, in an absolute sense, Easter is the launch moment of the healing revolution that we now know of as Christianity. It is indeed the resurrection of Christ that vindicates Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that everything he claimed about God, everything he taught, everything he represented, embodied and modeled, in fact, has been now vindicated by the one true God. Jesus is, in the way the church fathers came to eventually say this after a few centuries, a couple of centuries, uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the full self-revelation of God. And just like that, bam, what we know of now as Christianity is born. And so I say all that to say that um, this morning, my reflections for you really come, really flow out of that general idea. Well, Easter, it feels like an ending, but in reality, it's a beginning. It is the beginning of everything that we know of now that we uh, think of as Christianity. And so I want to take that general thought and try to boil it down um, to, to just that idea that Jesus is the full self-revelation of God. This is stunning. This is staggering. And the question is, for centuries, what is God really like? What is what is God like? It's actually a giant historical conversation between the ancient priestly class of the Hebrews on the one side and the Hebrew prophets on the other. And these guys are, these, there's, it's a whole conversation about what is God actually like. And it's important for us as well because as followers of Christ, for years we've used the word discipleship. I'm not sure if that word works for you or not. I'm okay with that word. I like that word just fine. But a, a word that I like better is spiritual formation. We are all being formed as we, as we walk along, journey along, whatever metaphor you want to use, as we continue to pursue God through Christ. We are all being formed. Um, and I just want to say for my part, my observation, uh, this is true for better or for worse. In fact, A.W. Tozer made this observation some decades ago, getting at this idea. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. This is A.W. Tozer, the great teacher. Um, uh, I don't know if you 
some would agree with this or not, but he's really kind of a mystical writer when you read his stuff. But he's getting at this idea. He's saying, look, this is a big deal, what we conceive of God to be like. And if I could take the privilege of expanding that out, I would say it in at least two ways. It's because a human being is like an orange. <laughs> you know, when you, when you get squeezed, what's in you is what comes out, you know. And so in the context of spiritual formation, right, as we are through the days and the weeks and the years and the decades of our lives, as we are pursuing God through Christ, the knowledge of God, intimacy with God, then you can start to see how the way that we conceive of God and what we believe God is like becomes of utmost importance because what it is that we're pursuing in our spiritual lives is what it is that's getting inside of us deeper and deeper and further and further and more into our bones, into our pores, into our psyche, into our soul. And so then like an orange, when you get squeezed in life, what's inside of you is what comes out. And so in other words, in a word, the reason this question is so important the reason this question of God image is so important, what we conceive of God to be like, is because, in a word, imitation. In a sense, we will all imitate God. And I'm going to say it again, for better or for worse. This is, quite, this is why it's critical that we take the question seriously. This is why it's critical that we take, I don't want to say, I don't mean it wrong, but I, I'm going to say it, the question of Easter. This is the reason we take the question of Easter so seriously and actually... Uh, we're going to get back to that word from a different angle. Easter is actually, as Paul's going to say in just a moment, a mystery revealed. So, so back to the, my word question, you could say Easter is a question answered. The question being, what's God like? Easter reveals what God is like, namely that Jesus Christ is the full self-disclosure of God. Okay, so let's get into this. Romans chapter 16. Let's just read this. This is near the end of what many would say, some would say, was, is Paul's greatest letter, the letter of Romans. He says this, Now to God, who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever. Amen. And I just want to add my own amen to that. Good stuff. My gospel, Paul says, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, the kerygma, that's the Greek word, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to, he says, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed. Listen to all those words jammed in there. Gospel, Jesus Christ, mystery, now reveal, or the word revelation. So Paul says, in essence, the good news about Christ is a revealed mystery. Or the gospel, the good news, the telling of the gospel, is the telling of a mystery that's now been revealed. Now that's important for us to grapple with. What Paul is saying is that the telling of the good news is the telling about something we did not know but has now been made known or something we did not expect but has now been revealed to in fact be reality. And embedded in this dense paragraph 
is the word revelation. That's the English translation of the Greek word apocalypsis. Now, you immediately recognize that word when I, when I uh, try to roughly give you the redneck version of that Greek word. Apocalypsis. You recognize the English word apocalypse. And this is, I would say, in English, unfortunately, this English transliteration of the Greek word apocalypsis um, has been tragically misunderstood and misused to convey the idea of disaster or violence or catastrophe, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. Like Apocalypse Now. Anybody see the movie Apocalypse Now way back in the day? Robert De Niro, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, right? Um, it's a classic example of a misunderstanding of this word apocalypse. It even, it even came back into our common vernacular over the last several weeks when we had our week's worth of ice and snow around here and much of the part of the country. Anybody you heard, heard it referred to now as the snowpocalypse? Anybody hear that? Yeah. Okay. So, but, okay, and that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm not on a campaign to root that out of our speech. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just alerting you to the fact that um, the word itself, apocalypsis, doesn't mean anything like that. It doesn't mean disaster or tragedy or catastrophe. What it means is revealed. That's why in the English uh, translation here, the word, revela- the word uh, apocalypse is translated as revelation. It means revealed, revelation. It's almost like a, a picture word that means the pulling back of a curtain to reveal what was behind there all along, but you couldn't see before. And so, strictly speaking, an apocalypse is not even the introduction of something new into the landscape. Rather, an apocalypse is the unveiling of, actually, of what was there all along, but no one saw it. We didn't see it before, but now it has been made glaringly obvious. What was true all the while, what was in front of us all the while, but we didn't recognize it, has now been made glaringly obvious. That's what the word apocalypse means. It's like my favorite reference point for this. It's like the movie The Sixth Sense. Anybody see that one? M. Night Shyamalan, roughly 1999, Haley Joel Osment, Bruce Willis. You've seen the movie. If you haven't seen it, sorry, as a spoiler alert, <laughs> right? You get to the end of the movie. Oh, my goodness, Bruce Willis was dead all along. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah! You know, and in that moment, you go back and you're like, oh, I want to watch it again now, right? And see all the, all the clues that were there, you know, that he was dead the whole time. Or... Um, another example, the book of Eli. Anybody remember that one? Denzel Washington. Kind of like a post-nuclear holocaust setting uh, type vibe. And he goes through all these adventures and he's a little bit of a mystery man uh, kind of thing. And suddenly you get to the end and it's revealed that what? He, he was blind all the while. It was blind. And at that moment you go, oh man, I want to go back and watch it again. The dark sunglasses. This explains so much, right? He was reading his Bible the whole time, but he was reading it in Braille, you know, and saw that and You go, ah, yeah, man, why didn't I see it? A mystery was revealed, right? It was true all along. It's now been glaringly, obviously, stunningly, shockingly revealed. The curtain was pulled back. Our eyes were open, and now we're we're now able to see. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is the apocalypse of God. Jesus is the revealed Mystery, he has revealed God to us in a surprising, stunning, even shocking way that no one expected. It has been, this has been true of the nature and character of God all along, but no one saw it until now, Paul is saying. Mystery 
revealed. We did not know this about God. We did not expect this about God. This doesn't fit with our assumptions. This ruptures every paradigm previously assumed about the nature and character of God. And yet this reality has now been revealed to us about the nature and character of God in Jesus Christ. So, the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is a mystery now revealed. It is a paradigm-bursting, expectation-defying, assumption-denying mystery now revealed. That's the good news about Jesus Christ. So, Keep a grip on that one, and we're going to move to another one. It sounds kind of broad and abstract, but I'm going to try to draw this in to sharper focus. One more compressed summary statement from the Apostle Paul. This is from Acts 20. Paul speaking here. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. And here's the part we want to focus on uh, for this morning. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, now let's listen to Paul. Paul says here that the gospel is the good news, the telling of the grace of God or the good news of God's grace. I love that summary, maybe, if we could take this as like one of Paul's summary statements about his own message. The good news of the grace of God, the good news of God's grace. Paul says, that's, that's the good news that I have for the world. Okay, so now, with that, keep what we just said before, let's bring these together. We said before in Romans, the Romans passage, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a revealed mystery or a mystery now revealed. And here he says that the gospel is the good news of God's grace, the good news about God's gracious nature. Let's say it that way. So, could, could we, would it be fair for us to pull these two thoughts together and say that for the Apostle Paul, the good news of Jesus Christ is the revealed mystery of God's grace, the revealed mystery of the graciousness of God? Yes, the answer is yes. That's absolutely what we can say. The mystery that is revealed in Jesus Christ, and again, detonated with Easter, is precisely the revealed mystery of the profound graciousness of God. Nobody expected it. Nobody assumed it to be the case. It is, it was, a mystery that has now been disruptively disclosed in and through Jesus Christ. In other words, if I could once again put words in Paul's mouth, we have now been jolted by the deep graciousness of God because it has been revealed to us in and through Jesus Christ. Paul says this was a mystery, but it's now been revealed. And we can no longer dodge it. We can no longer miss it. We can no longer, we can no longer avoid it. We have been, well, more or less jolted to the core with this self-disclosure of God in and through Jesus Christ. The mystery of the deep graciousness of God. Now, let's counterpoint with that a little bit. 
Let me tell you what's not mysterious. Let me tell you what's patently obvious, at least according to our own human assumptions. Here's, here's, what, here's what everybody expects to be the case about the nature of God. And you, you know how this list goes. Here's what everybody expects. Well, you know, the universe is, is such a way, God has architected the universe in such a way that you get what you deserve. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Nobody ever says it this bluntly, but basically what everybody expects, what is the unmystery, is that God loves the good people and he rejects the bad people. God rewards the good people and he punishes the bad people. That is the unmystery. That is what everyone assumes. God, furthermore, God simply, you know, God cannot simply overlook bad behavior. He requires some sort of punishment as justice for bad behavior. This is what everybody assumes to be the case, including Paul, prior to him being jolted himself with his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. In fact, this is a very common way of explaining the meaning of Good Friday. Why the suffering and death of this innocent man? Well, it's because God is just and humans have sinned against God. And so God requires that someone must suffer in order to satisfy God's own justice so that God is able to forgive humans for their sinfulness against God. That's the common rundown of thought. And can I just say what's missing from that equation? What Paul has just said, the good news about God's graciousness. What's missing from that equation is precisely grace. But this way of thinking is entirely unmysterious. Why? Because this is what everyone assumes to be true. You don't need a revelation of a mystery to, to, to look around the universe and say, well, that's just the way things work. Tit for tat, you get what you deserve. That's not a mystery. That's not a secret. That's not an aha moment. That's not a revelation of anything except more of the same. This is what everyone assumes to be the paradigm that everyone carries around in their religious imagination. This is just a religious version of how it is that humans have always conducted their affairs with one another. We call it tit for tat. You get what you deserve. Whatever you give to me, I'm going to give right back to you. Whatever I give to you, you're probably going to give right back to me. We call it tit for tat. You call it whatever you want. And remember, as I said before, this is exactly the religious paradigm that young Saul of Tarsus was operating uh, underneath before he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Why was he out persecuting these Jewish worshipers of Jesus? Simple, because, because to worship anyone other than God is an offense against God, and God's always demands that an offense must be punished. And if God's not going to do it directly, well, by golly, I'm going to do it for him. <laughs> so that's what Paul is out doing. That was Paul's religious mindset. That's what he thought. That's how he thought the cosmos works. And so Paul encounters Christ, and what happens? He is completely, thoroughly transformed. In fact, if you squish together the narrative of his life, because of his uh, encounter, <laughs> confrontation with Jesus Christ, on the road to Damascus, Paul is transformed from the persecutor into the person who would ultimately rather 
die from persecution rather than retaliate against those who are unjustly persecuting him. Why the transformation? Because Paul was convinced that he had encountered God in Christ. Radically forgiving, self-emptying, self-giving love is what Paul encountered in Christ. All of this, I'm not saying this is obvious, but I'm saying this is what the earliest Christians claimed. This is why what the revolution that we know of as Christianity was launched. This is the, this is the I used the word detonation a moment ago. I don't mean that in a, uh, in a destructive way. I just mean this is the, the rocket launch fuel that launched the revolution of Christianity. And yet, we have been, I think you will agree with me, we have been slow to learn this. Um, despite all of this, many people still today carry around the old and very unmysterious view of God. Tit for tat, you get what you deserve, rewards and punishments, balance the scales, all of that. And so today in our last few minutes, I want to see if we can maybe make some more progress on this by going a little bit deeper. And so, I mean, I don't know, you know, if you think, okay, that's kind of a, a description uh, of what's going on. I want to do now, just for our last few minutes, a little bit of spade work and dig into the, to the soil a little bit below the surface. And I want to talk with you about this word, retribution. Now, it's not a, a super common word, but you undeniably... You know what the word uh, means. Um, sometimes it's helpful to carry a word like this because it carries a big thought within it. So here's basically what we mean by the word retribution. It basically, it means payback for a wrong done. That's what the word means, payback for a wrong done. Payment of price, right? Um, but when it comes to thinking about God, the theology of retribution, as it's called, um, is even broader than that. And so we could say it like this. The theology of retribution basically says this, that God works on a reciprocal system of rewards and punishments. So the theology of retribution says that God rewards good behavior with good things. God punishes bad behavior with unpleasant things. That is the theology of retribution, that the universe works on a grand system of cause and effect. And your moral behavior is the root of the cause for better or for worse, right? It's as if the way that you behave somehow predetermines how it is that God will treat you in life, but also that your behavior in a way actually obligates God to treat you in a certain way because according to this theology of retribution, it's just the way the universe works. Like there's this grand set of cosmic laws, at least some folks tend to assume, and even God must abide by these laws. And under this paradigm then you can see that religion becomes the entire enterprise of figuring out the cosmic laws so that we can work the great cosmic system in our favor. Uh, and, of course, avoid the unpleasant possibilities on the flip side. 
And invariably, this way of thinking, it becomes behavior-driven. Usually moral behavior becomes the kind of the linchpin of the whole system. And so in a religious system infected by this way of thinking, faith generally degenerates into little more than moralism. And again, almost everybody thinks this way. This is why Paul would have to say something like, a mystery revealed, the good news of God's grace. Notice that phrase, the good news of God's grace. Hey, it turns out God is gracious, and that is great news. <laughs> we, were, we didn't know that before. We, didn't, really didn't, we really didn't confront the possibility. I mean, we know that there's the phraseology in the scriptures that God is loving and compassionate and faithful. We know that, but basically, we assumed something different. And Paul says, I can no longer... I can no longer hold on to that. This stunning revelation of God through Christ. It is an announcement that God is deeply and thoroughly gracious. Now, I've stated all this in kind of a blunt and unvarnished way. And so I think we can all see the weakness in this giant belief system. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge in the everyday ebb and flow of life, moment to moment, day to day, I, I just want to say that we, we're all susceptible to this way of thinking. And so everybody tends to think this way, and there are reasons for that, I think. Um, there are reasons that everybody tends to think this way. I mean, one, we could say everybody tends to think this way because everybody thinks this way. <laughs> it's like that kind of deal. But it's also the case that... Um, this way of thinking is, it's not true about the nature of God, but it's true enough about our experience in life that it tends to be latched onto and held onto. In other words, it is true enough to explain at least certain things in life. And so this way of thinking gets traction. And here what I'm referring to is basically uh, the 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 approach to life laid out by the book of Proverbs. Proverbs claims that if, you know, if, when you walk with the wise, uh, you know, life is strengthened. If you walk with fools, um, you will suffer harm. That's not because God punishes. That's because life punishes. I saw a bumper sticker one time. It said, stupidity should be painful. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, pretty, good. that's pretty good stuff right there. And, and the truth of the matter is that in life, stupidity generally is painful, Right? Um, and wisdom is generally rewarded. And that's not a moralistic claim. That's simply saying how things tend to work out, right? Well, some folks take that observed reality and insert this spiritual cause-effect mechanism into it. And that's where the problematic thinking about the nature of God comes into play, right? So it's not that this way of thinking is true. It's that it is true enough. So here, we're talking about the theology of retribution. This is a conversation that has gone on for generations through um, ancient Jewish culture all the way up until the time of Jesus. And again, as I'm saying here before, I've given you two examples of the Apostle Paul exploding uh, this idea, blowing it out of the water. And yet, because I think of our life experience and uh, the way we tend to behave with one another and we reverse engineer that into the nature of God, still this theology of retribution continues to this day. So what I want to do is show you in scripture, how this actually has been a conversation going on for centuries. And I begin, and we're not going to do the detail 
today, but I begin with the book of Job. I don't know when's the last time you sat down with a cup of coffee and read the book of Job, or maybe a pot of coffee, and or maybe two pots of coffee and read the book of Job, but I encourage you to do so, I, and admittedly, sometimes it kind of bogs down. Maybe grab a uh, an English translation of the Bible that you don't uh, usually read with. Maybe that'll give it kind of a fresh take. But I encourage you um, to, to sometime, maybe pick a, pick a day this week or whatever, and you can probably do it in one setting, and just read through the book of Job. This entire ancient poem is actually a, um, well, it, at least it's, a, it's an introduction into this very old conversation. What is God like? What is the universe like? Does it work on this on this law of of uh, tit for tat? Is that does it work on this principle of retribution, or is there something more going on here with the nature of God and what God is actually like? The Book of Job is actually a primer on this entire conversation, and you know the story. It tells the story in a poetic style uh, about a man named Job. He was uh, a good man, it says. He is a blameless man. He loves God. And then terrible pain and suffering falls upon him. And the story is all about Job's response to suffering. But not only Job's response to suffering. We also get a glimpse of some other folks, um, how they responded to Job's suffering. Um, we have these friends who speak to Job throughout uh, the, the narrative as it, uh, as it unfolds. And in general... When you read the thought process of these friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, those are some great names if you have, you may be respecting a child and you want a name for a child, there's a couple candidates, maybe not. Uh, but these three friends, so-called friends of Job, they speak to Job out of this thinking of retribution. And basically Eliphaz comes along and he says, hey Job, here's the deal, I just want to tell you, innocent people don't suffer. And therefore, since you're suffering, right, you are not innocent. You need to find the area in your life where you have blown it, missed it, misstepped against God, sinned against God, clean that up, and then voila, just like that, poof, your suffering will go away. He's speaking out of this entire complex thought process of retribution. And then Bildad, he comes along and he basically says, hey, fair is fair, Job, in life, people Get what they deserve. He even says, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers, right? So this friend is saying, hey, justice, it's all about fairness. And if you look at the details of, of Bildad's speech to Job, you, what you find is all these if you, then God. Job, if you, then God, right? So, or even if your children, your children have sinned, and that's why they've suffered. If you will seek God, if you are pure in heart. And this is the dead giveaway of the theology of retribution at work. Because remember, at the core of this, um, I'm gonna, I'm, it, it, at the core of this ideology, of this thinking, it's all about human behavior is the core cause, right, that obligates God toward us in some way, shape, or form, right? Poor human behavior obligates God toward us in a negative way. Uh, righteous human behavior obligates uh, God toward us in a pleasant way, right? And so this is, this is Bildad's basic spiel to Job. And then Zophar comes along, and man, this guy, I mean, he's a piece of work. I mean, he, he ratchets things up 
even higher. And essentially, he says this. He says, Job, you know, things really should be much worse for you. <laughs> uh, really, you just need to repent, and then the tide will turn, right? He says, I mean, with, with, even with all that you have suffered, Job, you've lost your, you know, your family, you've lost your health, et cetera, et cetera. You're actually even more guilty than your present suffering deserves so far. He says, because God, God knows a worthless man when he sees one. <laughs> and when God sees bad behavior, he says, of course, God is going to punish you. And so, Job, clearly, the solution for you is to admit your worthlessness and repent of your terrible behavior, and that'll fix all of this. And then, of course, that's not where the poem ends, thankfully. Eventually, God speaks. I'll read it to you, Job 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger, he says, burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And then immediately, that's the point where we want to go, oh, wait a minute, I got to go back and reread everything that they said and realize that all the while they were speaking lunacy, they were speaking falsely about the nature of God, not truthfully about the nature of God. And by the way, some people... Uh, it's important to be alerted to that. Some, some people say, well, I found a Bible verse right there in the middle of the book of Job, and it said X, Y, Z, and by golly, God, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, you just need to keep reading. You just need to keep reading your Bible and realize that it's the, 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 these ancient texts are actually far more complex than that. These are deeply devout religious people, and Job's friends I'm talking about, and they are completely wrong about the nature of God. That's what the book of Job reveals to us. So God says, hey, you have spoken falsely about me. I am ticked off about what you've said and what you've done. And then Job 41, God says, who first has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So this is, this is again, the ancient spiritual poet writing, speaking on behalf of God, but basically saying, look, the reality is when you really boil it down, it's not possible for us to obligate God uh, uh, back to us, either through the performance of our righteous behavior or through the malperformance of unrighteous behavior. He's saying, who's, who's, who's first giving to me that I should repay them in any way, shape, or form for better or for worse? So this is the book of Job in a nutshell. Basically, we could say, what does the book of Job say? It basically says this. Lots of people say lots and lots of things about God that everyone assumes to be true, and then God speaks and sets the record straight. That's what the book of Job has to say to us. Now, what about Jesus on this question of retribution? Despite the brilliance of this ancient poem that we know of as the book of Job, this ideology, this thinking continues on through the generations to the point where even during Jesus' day, the thinking of retribution was still commonplace, just like in the atmosphere. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus speaks to this issue as well. I'll give you a couple examples. Luke chapter 13, uh, here's, we pick up the story. About that time, some people came up and told Jesus about the Galilean that Pilate had killed while they were at worship, mixing their blood, that is the worshiper's blood, 
with the blood of the sacrifices on the altar. Jesus responded, do you think those who murdered, uh, do you think those murdered Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Not at all. And unless you turn to God, you too will die. And those 18 in Jerusalem the other day, the ones who were crushed and killed when the Tower of Siloam collapsed and fell on them, do you think they were the worst citizens? They were worse citizens than all other Jerusalemites? Not at all. Now, why does Jesus have to pose the question that way? Because that's how people thought. People thought, if you are suffering in some way, it's because of your unrighteousness. And this, your suffering is real-time flesh and blood evidence of God's retribution against your poor behavior. And Jesus says, no, that is not how the universe works. And, and by the way, you know, Jesus says, um, unless you turn to God, you too will die. Um, and as you know, the way the history of Jerusalem played out, uh, those people, in fact, did not turn to God. They held on to their thirst for violent retribution against Rome. Uh, and just a few years later, after the life and ministry of Jesus, specifically in 70 AD, um, the Jews attempted a violent military revolution and overthrow against Rome. What was the result of that? Well, Rome retaliated. Uh, Jerusalem was, was uh, destroyed and thousands of Jews were slaughtered. They did, in fact, die. They did, in fact, not turn to God. They held on to their thirst for violent retribution and did not turn to God. And because they didn't, they did, in fact, die. Not because God killed them, but because Rome retaliated against their attempt at violent overthrow. More from Jesus. What about, what about this idea of punishment as justice? Matthew 5. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To which Jesus' audience would have responded, if not out loud, certainly internally, you're right, not only have we heard it said, we've seen it written, an eye for an eye. It's in Moses, in Exodus, and in Deuteronomy, Jesus continues. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. To which we want to respond honestly, if it weren't Sunday and we're sitting here reading our Bibles, we want to respond with, what? What about justice? What about fairness? What about tit for tat? What about retribution? What about cause and effect? And Jesus says, nope, that's not actually how it works. That's not actually what God is like. He goes on, Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, why would Jesus assume that his audience had heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that's actually never written in ancient Hebrew scripture, but certainly there's enough material in the Hebrew scriptures that someone could cobble together an ideology like that. I'll just give you, you know, later you can look at Psalm 109, Psalm 139, what are known as the imprecatory Psalms as a group. Uh, you know, basically the psalmist in those passages assumes that that uh, God hates his enemies, uh, and we love God, and so therefore we hate God's enemies. And so certainly God's enemies are also our enemies. I mean, you can put the whole ideology together if you want. But anyway, it was common 
thinking. Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. It's what everybody thought. It's cause effect. You get what you deserve. Whatever you come, whatever you give to me, I'm going to give right back to you. It's completely normal. It's completely unmysterious. This is just the way the world works. But Jesus continues. And remember, this is the Son of God speaking, the second person of the Trinity, the full self-revelation of God speaking here. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. He is speaking in part to this entire conversation. And again, Try to hold on to all that thinking about retribution. Try to identify the places where the ideology of retribution still kind of lives within your own soul, your own religious imagination. Try to hold on to all of that and try to turn on the lights here and allow all of that residual residue of retribution that might still exist on the inside of you and hold it up into the light of these words. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Why? So that you could be good moral people and clear the bar that God demands of you? No. Look what he says. Love your enemies. Why? Because God is your father and like daughter, like father, like daughter, like father, like son, loving your enemies is the imitation of God. Be children of your father. This is what God is like. And so Jesus is inviting his hearers to the imitation of their heavenly father. Here's what God is like. In fact, he even goes further. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, watering their crops so that they're rewarded with the richest food that the land can provide. This is the opposite of retribution, everybody. Jesus is saying God loves his enemies. He loves the evil and the good. He makes the sun rise on them. He makes the rain fall. Everybody, this is stunning. This is what Paul is saying. Nobody expected this. Nobody saw this coming. This is a complete apocalypse this is a, a mystery unveiled. It was there all along. This has always been true about the nature of God, but nobody saw it. We all missed it. We all assumed that the way the cosmos works is cause, effect, and retribution. So riffing off of what we said about the book of Job, we could say something similar about all of history in a nutshell. Lots of people say lots and lots of things about the nature of God, and lots and lots of people agree with all those lots and lots of things. And then God speaks and sets the record straight. In this case, God speaks through his full self-disclosure, Jesus Christ. God's word to us is Jesus. Everybody, this is, this is what the earliest Christians were proclaiming from the rooftops, as loud as they could say it. Here's an example, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you have a way to make notes <laughs> in your Bible, I want to invite you to circle that word, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is the stunning spark, the rocket launch of the revolution that we know of as the faith of Jesus Christ. Here's another one, John chapter 1. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so, as we're here on the first Sunday after Easter, I want to once again pull together what we heard from the Apostle Paul from this, this passage in Romans and this passage in the book of Acts. The profound graciousness of God, it was a mystery to us. We didn't, we didn't see it, honestly. But it has now been stunningly revealed, undeniably revealed through Jesus Christ. Amen.